So we are starting a new series this morning. Um, If you're a little bit like me, uh, perhaps you watch Twitter or the news cycles of the world, and and it kind of feels like the world's at a a critical junction. There's there's stuff going on that seems to require our our attention. Societal ills are uh, kind of at concerning levels. There's breakdowns in civility. We have all sorts of inequalities, violence, abuses, uh, poverty that are sort of wrecking our world. Uh, Essentially, we have injustice. And I think we all kind of feel the sense of what we need is justice, but all we seem to see is injustice. And and justice seems so far off. When you're in the middle of a lot of injustice, when things are broken, when things are not as they're supposed to be, justice just seems so difficult to dream of. It seems so far away. How could things be put right? How could we make a difference? Is it even possible that God has a way of fixing this? The biblical answer to this sort of question uh, is almost always the same. When the Bible, because uh, it's not new that we look at the world and see injustice, but the Bible has a way of dealing with this, which is almost always the same. It's essentially to start small. So if you're concerned about justice, we as a community, as, as Westside King's Church, we want to be concerned about how does God put the world right and how do we play our part in that putting right of the world? it's probably worth us paying attention to how the Bible speaks about that, which is generally with small starts. In fact, the Bible's start to putting the world right is often really tiny. In fact, quite often, if you think about the biblical story, how often is God's beginnings of justice actually a baby? Abraham had a son. There were children of Israel. Mary had a boy, God's son. That somehow in these small little moments, God sort of points to these babies and says, this is how I'm going to start putting things back together again. So children have this really interesting role in God's justice. In fact, the prophet Joel, when he rolls out his prophecy, uh, this book in the Old Testament, in verse 3, as he starts to paint his picture, before he's even really said anything, as he's beginning to paint his picture of what God's justice is going to look like this, he says this, Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. Joel says justice is coming. God is going to put things right. And this story that Joel's going to roll out to us about God's justice begins with, we need to tell the children about this. That might seem quite normal to us at some level. But in the biblical world, the world that these texts that we engage with weekly was written, children didn't hold the sort of status in contemporary society that we're used to now. Children were often were often talked about as if they were essentially kind of products or or property perhaps is another way of looking at it. In fact, in some cases, children weren't treated that much differently from slaves until they reached adulthood. Children were just something that parents owned. And this makes then one of the features of Scripture quite shocking because throughout Scripture, you never hear children talked about positively as property. Instead, you hear children talked about as full humans. You see children talked about as part of the community of God. And we say, well, that's kind of obvious, but not in those days, it wasn't. In fact, the biblical mandate So often when it talks about justice, focuses on subjects like orphans and children because they were so important to God, but this was countercultural to the world of Scripture. It was a world where children were ignored, and yet, according to God, children must be cared for. 
In fact, the barometer of how we treated poor children or orphan children was a barometer for God of our concern for righteousness and justice. In fact, it strikes me as interesting that when you make a statement on a Sunday morning, like children are important, the fact that that seems so obvious to us, the fact that it's so obvious to us that children who are impoverished or children who are orphaned should be taken care of, the fact that any of that seems obvious to us is actually a marker of the influence of the biblical literature in our culture and society today. The reason we think it's right that children be cared for, the reason that we think it's wrong that children not be abused, doesn't actually come from our society. It doesn't actually come from something innate within us. This is actually the Bible's influence on the world. Were we to go back to those times and just spend a few days moving around, we'd be shocked at the way children were talked about. But the Bible inverts this. And it strikes me that one of the reasons that the Bible is so interested in justice and connects that to children is actually because justice is essentially a, a theology of the future. Justice looks beyond today. Justice looks to tomorrow and imagines what would it be like if God really got a hold of this. The question of justice is always an imaginary one. It's always one where we have to think beyond what we see. Because what we see tempts us to often just say, well, this is probably as good as it's going to get. But the prophetic call to believe in God's righteousness and justice says, but what could tomorrow look like if God could have his way? And so in the biblical narrative, this is always connected to children because they are the tomorrow. But also I think, and I wonder if the reason that God talks so much about children and justice together is because when injustice rules, when injustice gets into our world, it so often seems that children are the first to suffer. UNICEF tell us that half of the world's extreme poor are children. It's children that seem to be on the front lines of the damages that are caused by poverty. It's children that seem to so often be on the front lines of the damage that is caused by injustice. But not just far away, what about at home? Politically, environmentally, economically, we as a people are voting and living and spending in a way that leaves a debt for our future children. It strikes me that if, if you were to kind of you know, jet in from some other planet and observe the way that we live, you would probably come to the conclusion that we as a society and a people assume that our children are gonna be really, really smart because we're leaving lots of problems for them. We're leaving them problems that we haven't been able to figure out ourselves and often rather than attempt to solve them, we just hope that the next generation will do something with it. And the justice of the Bible always pulls that responsibility back to ourselves and says justice is required because of what's coming in the future. And so in this series, what I kind of want to do is wrestle with notions of justice and children. It's not specifically a series about parenting, although we'll talk a lot about that in there, but I want to be respectful to the journey that many of us have found ourselves on at different points. That's not always an easy one when it comes to talking about children, but also this is a Christian community. We have a vibrant sort of children sort of present around us all the time. So I want to think not just about ourselves individualistically as people who are possible in families that have children, but us as a Christian community and our thoughts for the justice which is in our city and in our world. And so framing some of these thoughts and notions about God's plan for the world around children, I'm hoping will be helpful. And just to be clear, I'm not the first person who has done this. 
In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is sat in a, a, a location and people are bringing children to him for Jesus to place his hands on them. This is a classic kind of rabbinic blessing idea. You would come to the rabbi and the rabbi would bless you and would pray God's protection and God's fruitfulness over your lives. But the disciples are rooted in their culture, you see, and, and in their culture, of course, children, the, the way they would constantly see children treated as unimportant, that children are not valuable in the way that we might think today. So if you've got the star rabbi in town, if Jesus is around, you don't want children near him. I mean, for goodness sake, have you ever met children? Like they are like just breeding grounds for disease. You know, like you bring a child to like Jesus, what if he gets sick? Like nobody wants to be the person that killed Jesus, you know, through a, through a, there's a kind of double level theological joke there if you hang around, if you hang around for long enough in there. You know, like I, I personally, like I am amazed that any teacher lives longer than nine months. Like, like seriously, like they spend their whole day in just a room of disease and uh, it's just coughs and snot. And they get these, so God bless the teachers and this miraculous sense that God has protected them. So the disciples are like, no, 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 we don't want, we don't want the kids around Jesus. Like who knows what will happen. Also the thing about kids is kids ask awkward questions. Have you ever noticed this? You spend a couple of minutes with kids. It's as if they have no concern for social propriety, right? Kids will just ask like, what is wrong with you? Why do you smell that way? What's wrong with your face? You know, really awkward stuff that's difficult to sort of navigate. So again, you don't want them near Jesus. But Jesus isn't wired like his culture. And maybe this is just worth us just thinking about. The disciples do nothing unusual. They do something perfectly normal within their culture and context. And Jesus wants to change that. So there's almost a warning just threaded into this paragraph of Bible that just we should take notice of. That Jesus is basically saying just our natural tendencies even towards how we deal with children might need considering. They might need paying attention to. Just because it's the way that everybody else does it might not be the way that Jesus wants things done. And Jesus is indignant at their attempts to keep the children away. Instead, he says to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So Jesus is perfectly in line with the scriptural narrative. If you've been reading the prophets of the Old Testament, it's no surprise that children rank highly on the minds of God. They're important to this story. And what Jesus seems to do is realize here that of course, actually the children, they do carry the future. They are, this is a justice piece for Jesus. It's about what's going on in this kingdom. This kingdom which is being shaped by God and imagined by Jesus. And here Jesus takes children and he puts them at the center of it. He doesn't say, all of you serious adults, you understand what it is to be part of the kingdom. No, instead he takes these snotty children and says, this is a vision of what God's kingdom is actually like. And then worse than that, he says, and actually if you want to be part of the kingdom, don't be like this, be like them. Messing with all of our social concepts and ideas of how we think you get ahead in the world. Jesus turns it all upside down. He tells us that children are essentially the model of what kingdom life looks like. 
So the kingdom of God, and we wanna keep repeating this so that we don't forget, the kingdom of God is this idea that God is working in our world and, and these glimpses of kingdom and Jesus' explanation of kingdom is telling us what it is that God wants the world to look like. Sometimes I find it's just always helpful to remember the kingdom of God is God's dream for what the world will look like when Jesus is king. But the kingdom's not all serious adult stuff. It seems to be children's stuff. And God doesn't dismiss the children. Let them come to me, he says. He doesn't keep them away. That's not surprising. God has a conversation with the prophet Jeremiah and Jeremiah has this big call of God on his life. But Jeremiah observes, I'm too young to work out what you're asking from me. And God's word to Jeremiah, do not say I am only a boy. So when Jesus says the children need to come to me and the kingdom is like them, that's not that surprising in the Bible story because we've heard and seen God constantly use children to navigate through his call. So perhaps there's a question for us when we read a text like Mark chapter 10 to ask what is it about children that God feels models the kingdom well? Is it their future? Is it their ability to grow? Is it their potential? Is it their innocence? Is it their trust? Is it their ability to be creative and have imagination for things that we don't yet see? Or maybe there's a different question about this if we kind of turn the question on our heads. Maybe a question for those of us who are parents or involved in families or communities where children are. Is this model of the kingdom the one that we give to children? Is Jesus' model of the kingdom that, that highlights an, an unhindered access for children, is this the model that we all share with our kids? So I have a child. You may or may not know that. I only have one, so, and she's seven, so I am no expert at being a parent. Okay? I have seven years' experience, and this, I have learned, doesn't count for much. Um, but I think I was probably similar to a lot of you that have had children. When I made a kind of decision process, it kind of went on somewhere in my mind when we decided that, you know, we were going to have children and then we started to, uh, well, anyway, you don't need to go in that Sunday morning. Um, <laughs> where was that going? Um, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's really should pay more attention to my notes. Um, I decided, like I think most people do, that basically... I was going to be a parent, and in terms of the type of parent I was going to be, I had this plan. And my plan was how to be the best parent ever. You know, all parents before me were just going to be prototypes, right? I was, I was, going, to, I was going to nail this. I had the books. I had the blogs. I had the podcasts. I knew really, really clearly and well what it was that I was not going to do as a parent. Any of you with me? Basically, I wasn't gonna do anything my own parents had done. They're beautiful people, by the way, and they listen to this podcast. Um, so, you know, but there's that sense in us, isn't there? Like, I'm gonna do this well, I'm gonna lead, I'm gonna be a great parent. My plan was how to be the best parent Ever. And at which point, I, I find somebody should have probably helped me with, you know, that famous Mike Tyson quote where he says, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> I had a plan and then we got a baby. And here was the problem with our daughter. The problem with our daughter was she had read none of the books that we had read, 
okay? She had read none of the blogs. And I very quickly sort of learned that she had her own opinions on stuff. And, and she had those opinions way quicker than I was prepared for. Uh, and she just didn't want to do what I asked her to do. And I was like, this is great. Now there's two women in my life that don't listen to me. Uh, that's my mom and my daughter, in case you're wondering. Now, I'm not sure how your parents were, okay? Now, we all have parents, and, and I want to be, you know, being serious, I understand that, that many of us perhaps have journeyed a journey where our, where our parents weren't great models to us. Uh, but, but even those of us that had great parents, there's that sense of, no, I, I know how I'm going to do it, and it's going to be different. And, uh, and, and we, we sort of, we have these parents, and we have our plan, and then, and then one day, and I could take you to the moment, one day I, I'm, I'm in this sort of interaction with my daughter. I say interaction, it was a war. Um, and, and, and I'm trying to convince her with all of my degrees, you know, I mean, my wife and I, we have five degrees between us and she beats us in every argument that we have with her. We tag team it, we, we group up and she outthinks us on everything. And so I'm having this, uh, this argument and, and my wife, she's tapped out at this point, so I'm in, it's my turn. And, and I, see, I hear myself verbalizing something. I start phrasing this statement and all of a sudden I have this horrendous moment Right? And maybe you've had this moment where I said something to my daughter and I was like, oh my goodness, I sound like my dad. Like, have you had that? That all of a sudden you become taken over and you just turn into your father or your mother and you're like, I'm gonna solve this. And it strikes us, and, and, and I don't think I'm the only parent that ever has this, that you realize when all of your plans have gone, you just go back to what feels instinctive. But actually it was learned and we learned it from somewhere. And it's interesting for me on, on that point that whether our parents were good or bad, I feel hugely blessed to have had good parents, but you still, you feel this sense of autonomy that no, I'm gonna lead my own kids my own way. But I have to learn and navigate the things as to how we do that. And the Bible speaks to us about that sometimes. It says actually we do have to be careful of the, the sort of what are we bringing to our family? What are we bringing into our house? The Bible talks quite regularly about how cycles of dysfunction can continue. That one generation might sin in a particular way and that kind of becomes the pattern of how they live. So all of a sudden the children and the grandchildren and the great grandchildren get stuck in this pattern. And if God doesn't somehow help us break out of that, sometimes through grace, sometimes through salvation and sometimes just through hard work, we start just perpetuating cycles of, of what we think is instinct but is actually learned behavior. So it strikes me that before we think about raising kids, we have to ask ourselves some questions about ourselves. In Ezekiel chapter 20, God has this exact conversation with Ezekiel where he talks about the people of Israel. And he says, I said to their children in the wilderness, do not follow the statutes of your parents, nor observe their ordinances, nor defile yourself with their idols. I, the Lord, am your God. Follow my statutes. Be careful to observe my ordinances. Hallow my Sabbaths, that they may be a sign between me and you, so that you may know that I, the Lord, am your God. Notice what God's seeding into our thoughts here. Just because your parents did it doesn't mean it's right. Doesn't mean it's wrong either, but doesn't mean it's right. And what you see then God doing in this, which I think is really profound, is he bypasses at some level the journey of the parents and comes and says the question for this generation was, am I your God? 
Your parents may have done one thing, in this case it was bad, but your parents may have done another thing that was good, but there still comes down a point where the question is, am I your God? God says, I am your God, so do you want to follow me? And for me, this seems like the core of so many wrestles for us as Christian community, that so often what we seem to want to do with our children is make them follow our ways, rather than our ways being the one that simply shows them how to get to God, how to, how to see a God that's looking for them, how to connect with a God that wants to be in relationship with them. And one of the things, if you work in youth ministry that you see quite regularly, is we end up with a lot of kids who end up with their parents' religion. And they come because their parents come, and they're involved because their parents are involved. And somewhere in the process and the journey, they've not found the opportunity for God to become their God. And so, the challenge for us is what are we trying to do when we raise children as a community? What are we trying to do as a church for our children? Are we just trying to create little versions of ourselves or are we trying to create space and environment where kids can find God for themselves and journey that? So perhaps there's a level of which when Jesus talks about being like a child, maybe one of the kingdom truths is that we have to learn perhaps to heal from our journey, perhaps to move on from our journey. Sometimes we have to simply stop our journey and say, actually, the model that I was given as a parent, the model that I was given as a church person needs to stop here. My background in church was that children had to just be quiet in church and children weren't allowed to do anything in church. We just had to sit there and not do anything. And that's so deeply wired into me. It's hard for me sometimes to sit in church with my daughter. I, I hear it coming out, be quiet, sit still. And maybe you can relate to that if you've had kids and come from a different context. But sometimes parents have to step up and say, actually, if this is a place where our kids are gonna meet God, if this is a place where they're gonna feel safe about a God that wants to be their God, we have to decide that what we inherited has to stop somewhere and we give them something new. We give them something exciting. It'd be beautiful. Heather often says to this, uh, this to us in a team when we're planning various things, isn't it beautiful to have an option to create space where our kids want to be in Christian community, where our kids want to be in church with us? Isn't it beautiful to be in a community where you see other people's kids want to be part of it? It doesn't matter if you're, they're your own kids or not, but this seems to be rooted into what God's saying to Ezekiel, that they have to connect with the journey themselves. And how do we do that? Cindy Brandt in her book, Parenting Forward, says it's becoming more clear that our job as parents isn't to shape our children into people who conveniently locate themselves in the world, but to afford them the liberty to grow into who they are. We are climbing the uphill battle to switch from an authoritarian to an authoritative mode of parenting. Here's a different question perhaps for us. Do we actually believe that God calls people? Do we actually believe that God can interact with a person's life and ask them to follow him in a very particular way? And then perhaps your answer to that question then connects to a further question is, and do you believe those people could be your kids? Do you believe that God can call children? Do you believe that God can speak to children? Are we brave enough as a community and as parents to give our children the autonomy and authority to step out of our shadow and into what it is that God has for them? 
See, because often we have this plan for how our children's lives are gonna be. We have this plan for what it's gonna look like for them to follow. And the difficulty is, what if God gets a hold of them? Like, it's nice to sit in church on a Sunday and see someone else's kid get on stage and be prayed for as they go off to, you know, the middle of Africa somewhere to serve on a project for a year. And we love that and we applaud those people and we write checks. But what if it's your kid? Because you had plans for them to be a lawyer and this wasn't part of the schedule. And that gets uncomfortable for us when we believe that God calls other people. But do we believe that God can do things in our own families, in our own church, and in our own community? Because it strikes me, to use a word we've used a few times throughout this year, it strikes me that children become easily affected by our performancism, by our desire that our children must do better than us. We believe that so often in Western society that our children must get better jobs than us, must move higher in their careers than us, must be more successful than us, must make more money than us. But we have to sometimes ask ourselves, is that what God has called them to? What if, what if your raising of your child in such a way that they can follow Jesus allows them to follow Jesus and it doesn't meet your neighbor's expectation of what a good child looks like? Are we able to cope with the sense of feeling like we're failing with parents if our kids don't make the sort of university that we want them to go into, the school that we want them to get to, because God starts to do something in their lives? Can we live with that? if that's what God does. So perhaps a question for us as Christians isn't so much are our children going to be better than us? Are our children going to be more successful than us? Perhaps the question is, are our children feeling that they can follow Jesus? Which brings me back to our text this morning in Mark chapter 10. I find one of the beautiful things about scripture, and I hope that you resonate with this, is that I, I have read through various texts of scripture many, many times. And what I always find beautiful is whenever you come back to a scripture, perhaps it's where you're presently at at a moment in your life, perhaps it's a piece of learning that you've done that has helped you, or perhaps just God just kind of prods you in a way that you've not experienced before. But you read a text and go, wow, I never kind of thought of it like this before. And when I read this text as I was prepping this series, I just found myself drawn to these three little letters just at the start of where I've highlighted. Let, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Let them come, Jesus says. Not bring the children to me, not carry the children to me, not make the children come to me, let them come to me. The disciples drop their guard, they remove the barrier, and, and Jesus seems to think that the children will navigate their way to him. And that's a, a kind of uncomfortable thought that here we have this notion that the only thing stopping these children from navigating themselves towards Jesus is the adults. And I find that perhaps a humbling thought as to what is it that we might be doing in our lives as parents or even just as community members. You don't need to have children to affect children in a place like a church. What behaviors and what attitudes and what sort of thoughts are we having that actually are preventing children from finding their own way to Jesus. Because Jesus gives these kids beautiful autonomy. Let them come to me if they want to. Let them come to me when they're ready. Let them come to me at their speed. Jesus is removing us from these cycles of, of tradition and also the temptation to kind of live vicariously through our own children. And instead, Jesus leaves it up to the kids to find him. 
So I wanna just leave you with three reflections I have on that this morning that I'm hoping you will find helpful. Whether you have kids or don't have kids, I'm hoping that these are reflections that help us as we follow Jesus in his kingdom. The first thing is, as I read this story of let the children come, this is just classic Jesus grace. The kids don't have the qualifications. They're not very grown up. They're probably gonna do something socially awkward. Who knows what pace they'll come at. Halfway between the disciples and Jesus, they might see an interesting rock. And, uh, and they will stop and discuss this rock for a short while and then plan to take it home. I say this as somebody who has a house full of rocks. Uh, you know, when your child knows the wonders of the Rockies, don't live so close to the mountains, right? Uh, and, you know, maybe they would be late, maybe they would be slow, maybe they would smell, we don't know. But Jesus doesn't seem to care because his grace welcomes everyone in, not based on who they are, but based on who he is. But it strikes me as I read this then, that one category of person that, ex that experiences very, very little grace in our contemporary world, perhaps even just in our city, our children. Children don't get a lot of grace in their lives. Our social anxiety that we have regarding our own upward mobility puts immense pressure on our children. So children nowadays are examined within an inch of their lives from almost the moment they're born. We've scanned them multiple times to make sure they're normal. When they, when they come out, we put them through basic training programs to make sure that when they arrive at school, they're already ready for school because everybody wants their kid to arrive at school not needing school because that tells us that we are amazing parents. And that's what's important in all of this, isn't it? You know, I find myself asking this question regularly, when do kids get to just be kids? Like just be children and do children's stuff. We constantly are asking them, what do you want to be when you grow up? What a destructive question to ask them, by the way, because what we're doing is narrowing down their identity just in terms of what they do. And kids are so much bigger. In fact, you're so much bigger than just what you do for a job. But why do we frame children that this is the only important question that they can answer? Because they have something that they have to achieve and reach there. And what about what else they do? We program them and schedule them and put them in classes to a level that they have almost no free time. And our children's lives become so over-programmed that I want to find ourselves sometimes just pausing and asking the question, how much can we over-program our children's lives in pursuit of perfection that it starts to become toxic for them? And when does it start to become toxic for us to think that way? Nick Lannon in his book, Life is Impossible and That's Good News, says this. What, what finally gave me some peace and the ability to approach the birth of our daughter with some mental stability was the realization that making all the right decisions along the parenting decision tree was impossible. Not difficult, impossible. It wasn't something that I could buckle down on or something I could solve with parenting books or daddy blogs. There was no way to make my way through unscathed. No, I had to acknowledge from the very beginning that failure was my sure destination. Success, as I have subconsciously defined it, was impossible. Ironically and counterintuitively, it was an admitting failure that I found peace. You see, Nick realizes in the rest of the chapter of this book that the pressure he's placing on his kids is actually about himself. It's not about his children. 
But notice how quickly the way we treat our children becomes about metrics, that they're reaching a particular standard, that they're making a particular level. And hopefully what you've got from me, if you've listened to the way we talk over the last few years at Westside, the moment you start to talk about metrics, you're not talking about grace anymore. When the moment you're trying to measure something, you're not talking about God's grace that says it doesn't matter who you are, you're just welcome. And I'm beginning to think that so much of the stress that we carry in contemporary life comes from living anti-grace. The unconscious belief that if we just do everything right, then everything will work out right. That we can kind of earn our way to the status we're looking for. But parenting like that is impossible. And as the Bible tells us, living like that is impossible. The, the, the whole message of grace in the Bible isn't just a message about salvation because the truth of real theology is it's generally true in more than just one place. Another thing I found myself as I thought about letting the children come is that this moves us into the area of risk. And we live in the 21st century where talk about risk and children starts this kind of apocalypse now like scene where over the horizons come the helicopter parents bearing down on anyone who would create risk for their child. We, we sort of live in this world where on one side we say we want it, we're trying to protect our kids from pain and we're trying to protect them from difficulty, but actually perhaps Perhaps there's a more sinister and dark side to it, that we're trying to ensure that our children don't fail in meeting our expectations. But this is serious for us because what we know from all of the statistics that we're seeing is that children that are overly sheltered don't do well in life once they have to eventually are forced to or society requires them or their job needs them to move out. We can so shelter our children that they can't survive in the real world. And Jesus says, let them come. Let them come because perhaps Jesus knows that it's very easy to end up with a generation of young people that, that want to escape from a world that they don't know how to live in. And it is hard. Like I, I, I stand in some hypocrisy at this identification this morning because like I, my natural tendency is to be the helicopter parent. I want to bubble wrap my child and make sure she's perfectly safe and nothing ever happens that would sort of cause her any problems because dad's always hovering, making sure everything is okay. But it's not possible for me. This week we had to navigate with my daughter. Her first pet died and you guys are cold. <laughs> like I thought that would get some sort of response. Little English girl, her pet died. You guys are like nothing. <laughs> Goodness me, I hope I never die when I'm working here, Bobby. <laughs> That'd be a tough funeral. Um, <laughs> so, so here she is, her first pet. She loves it and it dies. And everything in me is apparent. They're much better, much better, but really fake. Um, <laughs> I don't believe you anymore. <laughs> and, and as a parent, and perhaps, you, you know, perhaps you've, you've dealt with this yourself, there's, there's a parent in me that wants to completely exclude her from that and, and, and not have her journey through that. But the difficulty for me is there's no way for me to protect her from this. And then it starts to sort of realize, and it strikes me as interesting how often that as you're prepping a teaching series, you find yourself with so much to learn, right? But here I am realizing that actually my attempts to bubble wrap her, my attempts to quote unquote protect her aren't doing that. They're actually damaging because she has to go and live in a world 
where things die. She has to live in a world that doesn't go the way that she wants it to go. She has to live in a world where she is out of control. And the best thing she can do is trust Jesus and learn to live through that brokenness and pain. So everything in me that wants to actually be that helicopter protecting parent, it's actually not helping. That actually trying to journey with her through that sort of difficulty. And that doesn't make it easy. But it's hard as a parent, and and I'm sure many of you relate in far more complex ways to what I'm saying about how it is that we sometimes have got to step back. And Jesus says, let the children come. See, because the problem is if we hover too much and we just provide everything for our children and we protect them from anything that might happen in life, what we actually do is we turn our children into consumers, that all they ever do is receive from us and they become simply consumers. Their only value then is entertain me or give me what I need. And this robs children of their agency, but it also robs them of their God-given, kingdom-inspired creativity and imagination. But children are built to be shaped after God. They have tons of energy and creativity and imagination. And if we do everything for them, we rob them from that. So here's a thought perhaps, maybe it's risky, What if we cut down on all the pre-programming? What if we cut down on the classes and the scheduling and actually took the risk of letting our kids be bored from time to time and see what it is that God brings out of them in their creativity and imagination? David Zal says that wherever there's a creed we claim to follow, hovering behavior betrays a belief that there is no future for our kids, ultimately no enoughness beyond that which we engineer for them. Such astronomical burden is a recipe for breakdown in parents just as much as their teenage kids. Babies learn to walk by falling over a lot and really good parents let them fall because somewhere in stepping away that zone of protection, they learn to step out into their own creativity and their own abilities. Finally then, one other thought is to think about patience. If there's anything in the world that can teach us patience, it's human children. Because I don't know if you've noticed this about human children, they are really slow. Like just go to the zoo and look at a giraffe. Like those weird animals with legs and necks and all that all over the place, they are born and like an hour later, they can walk, right? If your kid can walk at 10 months, like they're uber advanced. Right? And you're like, you know, you're like on National Geographic or something like that with this like super walking child, 10 months, right? The human brain isn't fully developed until it's like 25. So go easy on your teenagers, okay? Their brains are still trying to figure out making everything work correctly. But 25 years, now once the brain does develop, and even in that process, the human is remarkably creative. God's design in humanity is unbelievable what our capacity is, but it takes time. And our world is going really fast. Our world is constantly speeding up. And this is doing immense damage to our children. We're trying to rush them out of childhood. We're trying to rush them through their teenage years. And what if sometimes the call of God is just to slow down? Jesus says, let the children come. And they'll come at their own pace. And they'll come to their own ability. Real change, I think, almost always happens really slowly and in its own time. Because children don't need the pace that we want to live at. Children don't need, and it's not helpful for them to live sometimes in the box that we want to make them live in so they suit our agendas. And maybe that's the lesson. In his classic book from some years back, G.K. Chesterton says this, because children have abounding vitality, 
Because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. (laughs) For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. What if justice takes time? What if the kingdom takes time? And what if the kingdom invites us as kids, with our kids, into a life of grace, not toxic performancism, of risk without the hovering fear of failure, of patience that's prepared to wait longer than the metrics will allow us? Zechariah says in his great prophecy, do not despise the day of small things. And Jesus says, let the children come to me. Let me pray this blessing over you this morning. May you trust the God who wants rivers of justice in this world, but wants to let it arrive in the manner of children. So may you have grace, faith, and patience, just like a kid. And may God's grace and peace be with you. Amen and amen.